0: Uh, that's the
1: second time it's gone off never got home, they never got home, they never got home, those guys. Those, those
2: and I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it
1: better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good right. luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever
3: Hello there, you're very welcome to the Irish Times second captain's podcast this Monday Hi Murph
4: Hello there Owen Hi Ken Hi Owen, how are you?
3: I'm good, I've been working myself up into a Ryder Cup lather all weekend We'll have to exclu- excuse these suds Murph That's yeah. all right
4: Okay, that's yeah. enough <laughs> First of all <laughs> I'm glad that you're cleaned at least I am very, very so clean it Makes yeah. a nice change
3: First of all, I was reading all the previews, and then watching Rory do his stuff last night has got me got me all excited. You know you're getting quite involved in the build to an event when you start reading an article about the key role that will be played by Paul Laurie, one of the five <laughs> European vice-captains this week. And you actually managed to finish the article. Right. And have an opinion. Yeah, maybe,
4: maybe i think you can will call have it. an impact. Yeah, you definitely do have Ryder Cup fever.
1: Mm. A wily old... Fox-like glory. Oh, exactly, yeah. It's just what you need up against these yanks. I
3: say have more vice-captains. I don't see why you stop at five. You should have six, seven, eight.
4: There are 12 players. One vice-captain per player. (laughs) It's basically, instead of being a vice-captain, you're actually a vice-captain and valet.
3: I learned something I didn't know about Darren Clark, Europe's number one man, their captain this year. Mm. According to a piece by Nick Pitt in the Sunday Times, Clark is a loyal man who enjoys deep, long-standing friendships, but also keeps a black book which he, in which he enters the names of those he believes have slighted or crossed him. Who actually does... Does he really have a physical black book? Paul Galvin did.
1: Jack Charlton.
3: Yeah. If you really dislike somebody enough to need to write their name in a book, surely you don't need to write their name
1: in a book. Yeah. Also, maybe you, you know, just need remember. to throw the book in the bin and try and get a life. Yeah, as a
4: psychological... I I'm You know, it's not a good place to be psychologically. I would think.
1: What I want to do here is take all the negative feelings, the hatreds, the the bad emotions that I have, and crystallize yeah, them. Yeah.
4: Make sure that I don't forget any of put them. Put
1: them into physical form, and then really work myself up <laughs> thinking about them, and <gasps> just stew on that, and yeah. let that just just pour that into the well of my soul, and have it stew there for the rest of my life.
4: Ten thirty p.m. Kids are in bed. Oh, it's time it's time to house to, start to myself. Names to my Maybe book. I'll just sit down and open my black book for half an hour and remind myself. Of all the terrible things that have happened to me, and the people People that have done those (laughs) things to me for those things, yes,
3: we're going to chat to Sam Wyman of GolfDigest.com about Rory McIlroy's big win in the FedEx Cup and the legacy of the legendary Arnold Palmer who passed away over the weekend. You were up late, transfixed by McIlroy.
4: Sensational, (laughs) sensational in a golfing sense, but also just in a purely entertainment sense. I mean, the guy put on a show for the last well, it was four playoff holes. And then the last three holes of regulation. I find with these American golf tournaments, I'm going to say that I don't tune in for every minute of all four rounds. Um, but on Sunday evening, particularly when there's eleven and a half million dollars uh, at stake, that's the sort of thing that captures my attention.
3: You're so materialistic, Murph. I never knew I know, that
4: about you. I know. Um, I was right there, just imagining how I'd spend it if I were Rory <laughs> McIlroy. Uh, but the from holding out from the fairway on the 16th. Uh, right through to dramatic playing shots from under a tree and behind a tree, uh, all the way through to the fourth playoff hole, it was just sensationally good. Um, Mm -hmm. And there is, I kind of get why people say, right, obviously Jordan Spieth and Jason Day have had brilliant years, brilliant 18 months. But there is something unbelievably watchable about about Rory McIlroy, more so even than those guys, when he turns it on. It's pretty spectacular.
3: Dave Hannigan on the show today, friend of the show, to talk about his excellent new book. I have it in my hands. It's called Drama in the Bahamas: Muhammad Ali's Last Fight. It's going to be in your ears in a a little while. And Sinead O'Carroll of the Journal.ie, Kildare Camogie player, also. She's going to pop in to chat about the controversy that's wrapped itself around the All Ireland football final between Cork and Dublin, which uh, ended yesterday with a one point victory for Cork. Their eleventh All Ireland in twelve years but the Ladies' Gaelic Football Association had decided in advance, or well, they decided after Central Council meeting at the start of the year that they weren't going to use the Hawkeye system for some reason, reasons that we will try to explain in the piece, although not necessarily agree with. Anyway, Dublin manager Gregory McGonagall was unsurprisingly angry. We preach all year about having equality and standards. If this happened next Saturday as in the all Ireland Men's replay, we would be going to Hawkeye. When we came up to our national stadium to play, I believe a young girl of 12 years of age, growing up, dreaming to play in Croke Park, should be getting the same basics as the men get. Fundamentally, I believe our ladies' association have let us down. Strong words, and we'll get to that in a little bit with Sinead. Speaking of controversies... I know you've been taken with this one, Ken, and we haven't got around to it yet, so I want to talk about Bradley Wiggins a little bit now? No Brad. He broke his silence on the TUE store yesterday. Uh, not many people were too impressed with either his performance or that of his interrogator, Andrew Marr, on the Andrew Marr Show on BBC. So, OK, the background here, Wiggins and Sky had received three therapeutic use exemptions back in 2011, 2012 and 2013 to allow him to take an injection of a powerful corticosteroid for medical reasons. They've talked about asthma has been mentioned as have various allergies. And Each of these injections was given before, right before major races, Tour de France 2011, Tour de France 2012, which he won, and the Giro d'Italia in 2013. Those are the months
1: when he has hay fever worse, though. He he, he seems to struggle with... It's with It's the months where there's a lot of pollen.
3: A lot of pollen, yeah.
1: And they happen to be the same ones where you go to Grand Tours.
3: Mm. It's unfortunate, isn't it?
1: A lifelong asthma sufferer champion cyclist. <laughs> I mean this just looks so bad. You know, but but I mean it's it's not surprising, I don't think, really. Not surprising, but it is when it comes it's
4: counter to everything that Team Sky have said they're about. Exactly. Yeah, yeah.
1: but I mean who believed who believed them? Well, well who, a lot of people absolutely Who start. are the, who are the who are the rubes out there? You know who are the simple people out there who were an ostrich who were lapping up what they were being told by Team Sky
4: Plenty I mean you're talking about vast swathes of Great Britain if we were to link that to the 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 culture that created Team Sky is exactly the same culture that created Team GB's unbelievable success at mm. the velodrome So Yeah well we've started the Yeah
1: team GB outperforming every uh, you know outperforming the superpowers
3: and further afield in Britain I would say a lot of people wanted to believe in a team that could come along and win clean uh, and I suppose we should state that this is not
1: contrary to the rules no but it's but, but it's Bradley Wiggins never me- Bradley Wiggins certainly never mentioned it you know, here's a an idea might have been to be transparent about about what he was taking. Mm. You know, if they've announced a TUE, I've taken a massive uh, dose of um, dose of powerful yeah. steroids just before the Tour de France. Uh, <laughs> there's nothing illegal with it. I've got a TUE. But for some reason, he didn't want to put that out there at the In fact, time. he said
3: that he didn't have
1: any needles.
3: He, was it? We'll get to the needle part, Andrew Meyer, in a second. Oh, do you
1: mean intravenous or intramuscular? Mm. I mean, vaccinations or?
3: When
4: you say needles, really, what you're talking about is, is doping. There. Needle
3: and thread or? In his autobiography, Wiggins had banged on about the amazing physical shape that he'd gotten into in 2012. He said, I'd done all the work. I was fine-tuned. I was ready to go. My body was in good shape. I'm in the form of my life. So the interview with Meyer did nothing to enlighten us as to how you can be in such peak physical condition and at the same time be suffering so badly that you need a powerful drug and medical
1: condition. Uh, They were abusing it. I was just using it. (laughs) You know, there's a big difference between abusing something and using something. Now, in a lot of ways, it's basically the same. You just take the drug and uh, you go out and cycle your bike uh, really fast. The difference is that when you're just using the drug as opposed to abusing it, you've got a a medical certificate for an underlying medical condition. You're allowed to use it, although you don't necessarily want people to know about it. You don't tell people about it. Then a bunch of Russian hackers come along and blurb the details all over the internet. This is a bit of a disaster, isn't it? I mean, if people, you know, if, if there's this question about TUEs, whether they should be made public. Well, they are public now. They're basically public. You can't rely on any of that Information being kept nicely under the carpet where it is, so they might as well start publishing this if they're going to be taking, you know, drugs. I mean, there's, there's a question over whether they should even be allowed to take them. I mean, some people would argue, no, you shouldn't. You shouldn't be allowed. Uh, you shouldn't be allowed to It just clouds the issue too much. But I think at a minimum, first step, they should just be publishing. Okay, I'm on this, 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 and this. Yeah, you know,
3: the, the issue is their invasion of personal.
1: Medical history, yeah, but you uh, know, it's a, it's 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 for it, you may have to offer that of, up on the, uh, it's a the altar of uh, it's yeah. condition participation. You know what I mean? Like, uh, if you if you've got a, if if you're taking stuff which happens to be on the banned list, then even if it is for a TV, you have to disclose it because if you don't, somebody will. Somebody will. Don't worry. These fancy bears have done it. I mean, these are apparently a bunch of Russians. You know, we we can all see where the motivation for that. Is coming from uh, a lot of a lot of uh, bad things that were happening in Russia. You know, organized state-sponsored doping, collusion in the suppression of positive doping That was all made public. Russian, the Russian attitude to that has always been, "Well, hang on a second, we're not the only ones doing this." And I think we can see that uh, a lot of this stuff is is uh, is kind of being drift fed out, and who knows where it's going to stop?
3: It's funny that the initial analysis of. The initial sort of angle that was being taken a lot in the UK that I noticed anyway was the c- criticism of the fact that these sensitive details were being leaked. But the more the more silence that has emanated from Sky, the fact that Brailsford, normally not shy of a microphone necessarily, hasn't said anything meaningful. And the fact that it took this long for Wiggins to say anything at all has re- really turned a lot of people, a lot of people have turned on Sky uh, including plenty of people who have been championing them, championing them up until this point. Let's hear a little bit from Bradley Wiggins talking to Mark.
0: But you did say I haven't been injected, I haven't used needles except for vaccinations, and that wasn't quite true, was it? Well, for medical conditions. And I think at the time that the book I was I wasn't writing the book, I was writing it with a cycling journalist who was very knowledgeable on the sport and had lived through the whole era of the Lance Armstrong era and the doping era. So and from your point of view needles meant have you been doping and the answer was no. All the questions at that time were very much loaded to, towards mm. doping.
3: Yeah, I don't know how convinced that is true. A lot of, he is correct about the questions being being loaded towards doping. Yeah, well
1: people make up their own minds what they think of Wiggins. Mm. You know.
4: And I think a lot of people have in the last week, and into the void, as you say, that you've been talking about the void of of no comments from Sky. A lot of people have just have, I think, made up their own mind in that void. Well, so
3: this interview ambled along for about five and a half minutes before Mar decided i had done enough on this and started to move on to bigger and better things.
0: All right, you are, apart from being a great hero of the cycling world, you're interested in politics, you've always been a Labour supporter. Uh, you invited uh, Jeremy Corbyn to help when you were editing a programme and so on. And I'm just wondering, there's a guy who's a keen cyclist, could do with a bit of help. Are you interested in helping him in some way? Um, I don't think he needed it, to be honest. I've met Jeremy, lovely fella. Um <laughs> <I don't know laughs> lovely fella.
3: Yeah, so it goes on in that vein. You can see why Andrew Marr might want to ask something on a politically based show about what's going on in UK politics at the moment but for sports fans us humble sports fans don't don't have those that breadth of knowledge and and, and interest in what's going on in the world and want to find out actually what's the story with with, with what's been going on at Team Sky a minute out of a six and a half minute interview would seem like a bit of a waste once you turn turned it on any other subject, really. But Myers has been getting stick for it, right? You know, this idea that he was more comfortable to get onto the terrain of Labour politics than he was to hang on in a subject in which he didn't seem to be that au fait. Certainly there weren't as many hard follow-up questions as you might have expected. But this model of current affairs journalist grilling big sports personality can work if pulled off correctly.
1: The interesting thing about you is that you brought on all these incredible star players. Keane, Beckham, you know, then Roy, right. And yet you fell out with all of them.
2: Well for those three. Yeah. And well I and I think, Rooney in
1: a, fan, in a sense. Yeah, I think you have to deal with many issues others. as a normal side.
2: Yeah. I never felt with Norman. Inns. Um, yeah. Yeah, but you have to deal with issues as they are at the time and you, what I say is the most important thing, don't lose your control. Manchester United cannot afford players to run the football club. It wouldn't be Manchester United. And I say that time and time again to the directors
1: over the years. So control is all. It's not all, but it's really, really important in terms. If you want to stay in a job, you need to have to control. Sounds a bit Stalinist. Oh Jesus Christ! I know you're left of centre, but
3: I know you're left of centre, but yeah, Jon Snow there interviewing Alex Ferguson on Channel oh, Four that's News. It's a great interview, yeah. especially if you remember at the time it was. Winning Murph, the book is sitting right there. Yes, it's, it's still being used. Winning.
4: It's called Leading. Leading. Oh, that's a different oh, book. That's the book, Sorry. book
1: that's the book he said he had no plans to write, in the yeah. Johnson oh. movie and John Sandby then produced it anyway. Sorry,
3: Leading is sitting Got there. He's there, yourself there being. And, yeah, just essentially propping up your microphone to yep. get it closer to your. Uh, well, so my,
4: I've got a long neck. You you've were going to mention neck. they were on It's fine. No, don't worry about it. I didn't want to
3: get personal about things. It so, was, no, it wasn't leading. It was his it was pre- previous, previous autobiography. One. He was getting a lot of soft soap, well, you know, a, lot, you know, a lot of interviews about how great he had been over the years. and There, was, there were a few awkward, maybe keen related questions thrown in there yeah. from other journalists, but largely he was... He, expounding about how great he had been yeah. and then Johnson was in 10 minutes was, is there a little bit more I thought it was even meatier than that
1: you held a very long grudge with the BBC because they 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 talked about your son and there was something to talk about with your son yeah, I mean, right. he was no. he was somewhere in the furniture of the agencies that were dealing with the club and that probably wasn't a good idea
2: no he was an agent for about a, a year and a
1: half and give up that's it but that's the bit the BBC concentrated on
3: yeah <laughs> so, you can look that up if you want the John Snow <laughs> interview. I'm just saying it can work. It can work. Yeah, in, like the, doing, in the case of Marv like Wiggins, maybe he wasn't as uh, stringent as a lot of us would have thought it was going to be. Sam Wyman, GolfDigest.com, is ready to talk about Rory's incredible victory. Sam, but first of all, we've got to talk about the passing of a legend of the game, Arnold Palmer, who, even when he was living for many years, has been credited as being one of, if not the most important figure in the popular, popularisation of the sport.
5: Oh, I think without question, guys, um, you know, people of my age who weren't around when Arnie was in his prime have um, sort of just benefited from the fact that golf is this, you know, big spectator sport and, you know, arguably uh, both here and overseas, you know, one of the five or six biggest sports in the world. And I think prior to Arnie being at the height of his career and being on TV, it, it wasn't seen that way. It was, an, it was very much a niche sport, but he... You know, he made a game that, you know, you've heard all the cliches, but he made a game that was very much an elitist country club sport and made it very accessible to, you know, the the middle class in the U.S. And then it sort of translated uh, to the rest of the world from there. So, um, you know, there's all kinds of measurements for this sort of thing. But I've heard people say that, you know, 80 cents of every dollar that a PGA Tour player makes should have gone back to Arnold Palmer because, he was sort of responsible for making uh, the game the livelihood that it is for them.
3: Through what? Through force of personality, largely?
5: I think so, yeah. I mean, I think a couple of things, right? One was great timing. Let's not lose sight of that. I mean, he, he happened to reach his peak right when TV was becoming a... a uh, Spectator sports on TV were becoming a, a thing. So, And he was this just arresting, charismatic character who had this style of play that was you know by most standards very unconventional you know he's a very reckless player to kind of go for broke so uh you know obviously a good looking guy and I think also his ability to recognize that and capture it uh in a way that he knew that you know he, he had a role in this and that he could really make a difference for the game so he really went out of his way to make himself accessible to people and reach out to people and I don't think I should stress. I don't think that's was an effort on his part because I think one of the great gifts of Arnold Palmer was that it was just part of who he was. He was a very engaging person and it all came very easily to him. But he did recognize that, you know, connecting with you know, this writer and this fan and this other pro am partner was hugely important. So all of those things, that sort of confluence of events, made him made him such an important figure at such an important time.
3: It's funny, Sam, when you read some of the tributes over the last day or so, the, I mean, he, he he at times appears like almost a comic book character. You know, he he pilots his own plane from tournament to tournament, uh, ultimately started graduated, graduates to Jets in the mid-60s, circum- right. circumnavigates the globe in later, well, not later years, still in the 1970s, and you know, uh, has these drinks named after him, all this kind of thing. It almost seems too good to be true that one one person has uh, so many strings to his bow.
5: I know it's amazing. It's funny. Lastly, like, this is even before he passed away. I was talking to my um, my eight year old son, and we were talking about golf. And he says, "Who has the most majors?" And I said, "Well, Jack Nicklaus has eighteen majors." He goes, "Then Palmer, right?" And I, I said, "Actually, no, it's not Palmer." And then I said, "It was Tiger Woods." Is it it's Palmer, right? I said, "No." It, my point is that. People just assume that he was one of the great players, you know, one of the greatest players of all time, which of course he was. But you know, in terms of number of majors won, he won seven, I believe. um, Which there's you know a handful of guys who had more. Player had more. Jones had more. Tiger had more. Nicholas had more. But no one was more important to the game, and obviously his sort of reputation is is a testament to that.
3: Ian you know, O'Connor of ESPN he wrote that Arnie and Jack book a number of years ago and he pointed to another side of Palmer that sure he was affable and popular amongst people and mixed very well but he did say he did compare him to all the ferocious competitors of today the the Tiger Woods and Tom Brady's and these kind of guys he says he was a ferocious competitor driven to prove his manhood to his hard, driven, hard driving hard drinking father and to prove his worth to doubters and haters who anticipated nothing more than a life of anonymous mediocrity from the Greenkeeper's son is that noticeable when you look back at old literature all old footage of Palmer that there was there was something there. He didn't quite have the Jack Nicklaus maybe uh almost uh, and Tiger Woods winning mentality but there was certainly a competitive a burning desire there.
5: I think so. I think in a lot of it is rooted from, you know, the fact that he's a greenkeeper's son, you know, he was a he was the um, you know, he did not come from a country club background in the traditional sense. I think he kind of constantly felt um that he needed to prove himself and the way he played was a testament to that because he kind of just said I'm here to win for, you know, I'm not here to to just have a respectable showing. And he, you know, went for a lot of shots that he probably shouldn't have tried. I mean, there's that famous story about he, uh, Ben Hogan and Ben Hogan saying something dismissive about Palmer being like, what's he doing here? You know, he doesn't belong here with us. it's just kind of that underlying tension that he was an out, you know, uh, uh, an outsider um, who had basically pushed his way into the golf world. So I think some of that sort of permeated throughout his career.
3: Well, on to this week, Sam, and I guess looking ahead to the the weekend coming, ominous signs from an American point of view, if you're looking at how Rory McIlroy streaked a victory last night?
5: Yes, very ominous. Uh, and it just makes me wonder, you know, where was the Rory that we saw during the middle of the summer when he was missing cuts? That would have been much more... Um, beneficial to the u.s. side but it just proves to me that he is the ultimate momentum player that when rory is feeling confident both in his golf swing but most importantly with his putting uh there's really he's almost impossible to beat i mean his that drive i don't know if you we were on the on the uh, first playoff hole yesterday when he just you know nailed it 357 yards hits mm-hmm. this beautiful iron into the green i mean it went missing the putt but it just proved that that he is you know such a feel player and is feeling so good about his game right now. So um, obviously very good in tournament play in the Ryder Cup. It's going to be very difficult, difficult for anyone to beat him.
4: Yeah, I mean, the the way that he won as well was pretty interesting from the point of view. As you say, on the first playoff hole, it seemed like he had just, it, you know, he had taken the form of the, the previous three holes and just said, right, okay, I'm just going to win this in the first playoff hole and obliterate the the his two opponents. But uh, Ryan Moore just refused to go away. And in the end, draining that 20-footer, to win it, uh, you know, f- uh, with a birdie as opposed to you know the Ryan Moore maybe missing the putt for par and Rory having two putts and taking the two putts. I mean, the fact that that's a huge confidence boost for how he's feeling on the greens. In it, it, in a way, Frank's the improvement that we've seen over the last month on the greens.
5: Completely, it was a very satisfying ending uh, from from both perspectives, really. Yeah. In the sense that you know there was this sort of lingering debate about the twelfth Ryder Cup pick for the the U.S. side and whether Moore deserved it, and you know Moore had proven his worth throughout that playoff. And you know, but suddenly if he makes bogey after a pretty mediocre chip on that final hole, it would have been pretty just a little messy. And uh, for him to make that putt and then Roy to make the the birdie putt on top of it was was I thought satisfying. But you're right, it was weird because I was making the case earlier that. Had Rory made that eagle putt on the first playoff hole, it would have been uh, the, the greatest moment in the ten-year history of the mm. FedEx Cup. Um, it still might be just the fact that he, you know, shot sixty-four in the final round. But, but he um, just, you know, lasted a little bit longer than we thought.
3: There was no great controversy around the, the pick as more as the final wild card.
5: I don't think so. I think uh, you know the whole point of this U.S. task force, which I'm sure has been ridiculed at nauseum uh overseas was you know to change the structure the, the the way they were picking the team and the the whole point was to pick the player who was playing you know a pick to save that last pick for a guy who was playing um the best golf right before and you know there was no one no one else who was on that list uh of potential candidates who had come close. I mean Moore was um you know you know had obviously had was in the playoff for the tour championship also has this amazing uh, match play record as an amateur, so he was a real, you know, he was a real good pick uh, for the U.S. You know, as soon as it was apparent that he was playing well.
3: You're a quick tip this early in the week. Are you confident about America? A lot less rookies in the team than Europe
5: have. Yeah, I mean, gosh, I I, I would never say I'm confident about the U.S. I would say um, the European squad just seems to buy into the Ryder Cup format at a you know, almost at like a molecular level more so than the US. They just seem to have they take to it more naturally than American players. And that's not from a lack of want on the US side. I know that they um very badly, you know, want to win. It matters to them. All those things have sort of been a you know, cliche has been expounded is that the Americans just don't have the same level of of commitment. I don't agree with that. I just think that it's just a it's just a difficult transition from playing 51 weeks a year for yourself to suddenly playing for others and I do think they have a good shot I, but I still think the Europeans are uh, the favourite based on just that those sort of intangible qualities
3: Alright Sam always good to talk to you enjoy the Ryder Cup thanks a million
5: Thank you You take care guys
3: Well no, if we haven't ridiculed this US task force yet this mm. US Ryder Cup task force should we be?
4: Well I, it's not a very streamlined uh, organisation from what I can see Uh Davis Love is captain but Tiger Woods is in charge of strategy for the American team. <laughs> now um we we have we haven't ridiculed this leadership uh, style but we have ridiculed the whole Ryder Cup captain nonsense which goes on quite a bit. I.e., this it basically comes down to a battle between the two captains and the golfers are just, you know, uh, unknowing pawns <laughs> in the overall chess game between these two captains who are basically I mean the role evolved from who's the eldest of us who didn't quite make it uh, why don't we bring him along I'm sure he'll enjoy the trip That was that's basically what the Ryder Cup captain was for the first 70 years of the the competition I mean Paul McGinley did a pretty good job uh, just Paul don't Aisner. you go
3: just don't you go trying to belittle the impact that my, my boy Paul Larry is going to have this week
4: yeah well I'm sure Paul Larry will have a you know, it, those four balls won't, won't follow themselves. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's absolutely the case. Yeah, uh, Phil Mickelson uh, is an, a, very much, in, well, I was going to say, in charge. It kind of seems like it's a hodgepodge of all of the major winners from America over the last 20 years. They're all kind of in there just floating around, uh, offering up their tuppence worth, and uh, we'll see what happens. Now, this is great if they win. There is a concern... Uh, which uh, Paul McGinley uh, brought up in the Sunday Times yesterday, that if they start losing, I don't know that anyone knows who the person is that's going to fix uh, the rather gigantic mess they may have gotten, got themselves in. Now, I think the U.S. probably will win. I mean, I think if they don't win this week, they may never win another Ryder Cup. Mm. Um, so you know, maybe we'll be maybe we'll be hailing the task forces. Uh, revolutionary Well, because next week.
3: But the task force, such as it was, was put in place to address the ills of the previous regime. We Mm. remember Phil Mickelson having a pop at Tom Watson at the end of the, (laughs) at the press conference at the end of the Ryder (laughs) Cup last time. Essentially the task force, the same guys you mentioned who are in these positions of power are the people who were on the task force to decide who should be in positions of power. So it seems that they kind of just back themselves said we're the big names we'll get this sorted and we'll divvy up power between us it's, it's kind of like uh, Kenny strange. Doug
4: Leash being put in charge of finding the next Liverpool manager and deciding that <laughs> Kenny Doug Leash was the best man for the job <laughs> yeah, uh, there is uh, it, it was 11 man task force uh, Davis Love the Third Tom Lehman Ray Floyd five current players Tiger Woods Phil Mickelson Steve Stricker Jim Furyk and Ricky Fowler and uh, three officers of the PGA Ricky Fowler got a wild card nod. well listen he was the best man for the job we, by all he, accounts he probably was in fairness but well, Bubba Watson's number seven in the world and has you know won a couple of majors, but no, Ricky Fowler's the man for them, all right?
3: Court claimed their 11th All-Ireland Ladies Football title in the last 12 years yesterday in front of a record crowd of almost 35,000 people who paid in despite the particularly heavy rain. But nobody's really talking about any of that because the focus is all about a point that wasn't awarded to Dublin in the first half. Sinead O'Carroll, news editor at the thejournal.ie, is with us. Sinead, thanks very much for popping in. You're welcome. Can you understand Dublin's anger?
6: Yeah, you totally can. Obviously when it's it's such a, it was such an obvious point. I don't think there was any even question about it when Carla Rowe put it over. It was it was over. Um there was a little bit she she went down injured afterwards, so I think there was I think sometimes when a player Actually, says that's a point, a referee will question it. I think there was a, a second missing there where the line were saying that was over, mm. but she wasn't herself. Um, I know Champions League going 2005, do you remember that? Like once you say it's over the line, if the player looks like it's over the yeah. line, it's over the <laughs> yeah. line. So I think there was a little bit of that. But again, the frustrating thing for Dublin is that they should have won it. They had all the chances in the world to win it. Um, I think they know that as well, that the game was there for them to take. They didn't take it, and this is just another hardship on top of what was going to be a really tough loss for them. And Anyway, And the fact that there is technology there that would have fixed it and it it wasn't used. And that brings all these questions that we talk about constantly. Any of us who are in the the ladies GAA field about why we're still separate um, and why there's still rules real differences like the Comogie Association are using Hawkeye now um, and the ladies football weren't I wasn't even sure yesterday when there was no Hawkeye I wasn't sure if they just hadn't gone to it um, or if it was if it was available or not and then we find out that it wasn't available um, for seemingly kind of unknown reasons.
4: Yeah I mean well that's that's, that's the idea that uh, you know the, the idea was being floated yesterday that it was because of the prohibitive cost of recalibrating the Hawkeye uh, operation for a size four football as opposed to a size five, I mean, from what I've heard, that that's not the co- that's not the cost in question. The recalibration isn't the cost. It's actually just the cost of having the Hawkeye employees in Crow Park for the day. So that would it would suggest that, rather than it being like a complex issue that they've decided not to try and yeah. you know unspool. It's actually just a basic cost that you just say, right? The guys come in, they do their job, they have the system in place. What actually, really. Just angers me so much about this it's not just it's not that they didn't constitute a rule at a central council meeting because they forgot or they mm. just said, Okay Hawkeye's not a big issue you know th- like they mentioned Hawkeye and they decided. No, we're not going to have it. I think that's the most frustrating yeah, thing to be It seems like some this.
6: kind of stubbornness or whatever. Mm, or we're not yeah. going to do that. Because with the recalibration, when I heard that this morning, I was like, that makes no sense. Because in Camogie, we play with a smaller ball, it's a size four rather than a size mm. five slither. So if we did it yeah. in Camogie Association, which we have less money um, than the Ladies Football Association, so if it wasn't a cost for us, it probably isn't a cost for the Ladies I Football I think the
3: cost thing seems to be particularly sensitive. I mean, McGonagall was one of his part of his quote yesterday Gregory McGonagall, the Dublin manager. If you take down the posters of Sinead Goldrick and Breech Corker and the other girls, Placid around the country if there was 1.5 million put into our association and it cost 10 grand for Hawkeye Use guys at the journalists use know better than I do. So there's there's money there. Like little have put money in this year. TG Carr have been on board for a long time. So this yeah, th- there was seems to be a bit of a sore f- point. And there were a lot of people paying. Yeah, thirty four thousand
6: yeah. people. That's a lot of people to go w- watch a game in any standards. I think we're used to Crow Park being full for all Ar- Ireland final day, but thirty four thousand even to get to a quarter final game for the men's would be a huge ah, it's crowd. A crowd yeah. It's a big big crowd. It's a big crowd for a rugby game, a soccer game. Um, but it was the next thing that he said. Put on the flip side, forty five to uh, maybe sixty officials spent a week in San Diego. Was was another one of McGonagall's quotes as well about how the money is being used. Um, what was
3: that with the San Diego All Stars trip? Yes. You're right. Yeah,
6: so I think there's probably a question. I don't think the ladies' football are, are short in money, so I don't think.
4: And the, yeah, it, it's weird because Egon Oferiel was actually uh, talking about this, this just in the last couple of weeks about. Uh, why it is that you know if we, it, there's no starting off, you'd have three different associations. And yeah, he was saying. And now you know maybe you're looking at this, and maybe he's being patronising in some ways. It, the way he said it kind of seemed a little patronising, to be honest. But basically, come it, it, if it's all under one umbrella, then you know everyone knows where they're going. So I mean, like it's it's not a case of the GA knowing better necessarily. It's actually more that the ladies football. And camogie associations are using GA grants all the time. Yeah. Um, you know it's a, it's, it's a
6: streamlining of governments. It's yeah. a streamlining of administration, like sports administration in Ireland. Obviously, there's huge questions about how we do things at the moment. Um, so
4: Without uh, going into... We're, we're not saying ...about anything. where you spent, <laughs> spent your summer. Yeah.
6: <laughs> but there are huge questions about that and having three associations while using the same grounds and like there, we have all these anecdotal evidence of my club when we were growing up we were one of the one club family that we were all seen to be together and, and we actually had three clubs we only had football hurling and camogie and now we have ladies football as well um, but growing up we had no issues in terms of pitches, dressing rooms and equality of treatment because we were in that kind mm-hmm. of one family um, but then other clubs who didn't partake in that had a lot more difficulties so it it just became because comes a slog every time and and especially cuz then the associations the women's associations don't work together so you've seen things like clashing fixtures they fixed that this year this is the first year that the girls in Cork have had no issue and and which was great but the fact that we're saying that's great is really pathetic. Mm. Like that mm-hmm. should be. They a didn't no-brainer. even have to drive. Uh, yeah. you know,
4: forty miles in an hour and a half between two championship games. I mean, yeah, and it would bizarre, be a lot
6: easier to get equality if we were the, the, all together because that means expenses would have to be the same across the board. It would have to be worked out in a system that if the men's team are getting petrol and, and mileage, then the women's teams are as well. That's not the case now in counties. Um, like. In my county, Kildare, we wouldn't be getting expenses for driving to Dublin for county training or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, but it's different then for the men. So it would make more sense, I think, for a lot of we won't get the equality we need until until that happens.
3: I don't see why it can't happen really quickly, though, if the president of the GAA says it should happen.
4: Yeah, and t- to be fair, he said it's one of the aims of his tenure as president. So, I mean, you're talking about two years, effectively. So, I mean, I think... Uh, I don't
6: think it's them not welcoming us in, though. It's It would be the disbanding of two to organizations which people are in the organizations are obviously very fond of. Okay.
4: So so people are in certain
3: positions or they've... they've
4: yeah. Well, this, yeah, this, I suppose it's the same in uh, any major organization. You've got to the top of whatever organization yeah. you're in. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I, I think that that's, you know, at some stage you have to say that stuff like this is so easily avoidable that you can't really, in all honesty, stand in the way of something that's so blatantly the right thing to do yeah. now at this at this juncture. And
6: especially because there has been such good work like the ladies football the little sponsorship this year it has been brilliant and even I know there, there was the disparaging disparaging remarks about the posters plastered around but that has been brilliant for the yeah. sport. It's brilliant for young girls playing. It's uh, We talk about it all the time that the visibility of female athletes needs to be heightened for girls who are younger to see that, to see it's a viable option um, to want to be a footballer to want to be a hurler. Um, so that has been brilliant. The little sponsorship has actually really put the players at the centre of it rather than anything else um, so in that way the association has done great things but it would be good if it would if it was just brought into into a more streamlined, I think, GA family.
3: Yeah, just on the back to the Hawkeye issue, Sinead, because we were, t- we were talking about the costs of it and that has been mentioned in the past by the Ladies' Gaelic Football Association, but yesterday it wasn't. Yesterday what they said was that it went in front of Central Council whether or not to use Hawkeye earlier on this year. The decision was taken that in order to have a level playing field for all teams and all fields throughout the country, throughout the championship, that we wouldn't use Hawkeye.
6: Yeah, I didn't really understand that argument because if you you obviously only have it available to you in certain grounds and certain stadiums. It's the same for for the championships in the in the men as well. So I don't understand, especially on All Ireland final day, you don't want this to be a talking point, mm. like, and you. Yeah, well, I mean, you know,
4: that's what they've said, and that's okay. That's fair enough. That's the reason they've given us. Mm. But I mean. I, I you don't I, buy I can't that reason? Why. Well, no, I don't. I mean, if, well, why, then, why well, would you? Well, I mean, it was the it, same argument being.
3: In fairness, that was an argument that was in place against Hawkeye being brought in to the GA in the first place. Yeah, and
6: didn't UEFA say it as well about? UEFA when, it, for and goal fi- line fi- yeah. FIFA were FIFA big yeah. step ladder. <laughs> yeah.
3: uh, was big into that that you, the same rules should apply to a team playing on a Sunday morning in their yeah. local yeah. park as should I should apply in a World Cup final. Which I don't think is no. That means mm, like you have official linesmen
6: sense. and official umpires in yeah. every single GA match. Yeah. But that doesn't happen. Yeah. Like no.
4: I was, like to be honest. I mean, it's like yeah. It's a reason, and it's a reason that you would spend three and a half seconds saying like yeah. right, okay, and de- debating it. And then it's like right, well, but at the same time, we can put it into Crow Park. We can put it into Thurles. It's going to be rolled out to a couple of more grounds. I mean, I just no. Mm-hmm. I, I I wouldn't buy it for a second. To be honest, I mean, and the if, conversation
6: if, if, has to go to. Why do we need this? We need to do it to make sure that we're fair and accurate when it comes to these matches. So even if you can't do it for all of them, isn't it better that you're doing it Yeah, if you can be fair and accurate
4: for 1% of the games, do it. And if you can do it for 10% of the most important games, the the argument just gets more and more stupid the more you talk about it. Yeah, so we're saying, (laughs) tough
3: break for Dublin. Not going to get a replay, though.
4: And funnily enough, the the way the game went, you know, it was, you know, and, and this is to go from an egregiously wrong uh refereeing or umpiring decision into the nuts and bolts of how the game actually developed but yes. you know the way the game went if Dublin were four points up at half time the way the the way Cork came back at them to me it seemed like the, the second cork got the goal it wouldn't have mattered you know yeah. the the writing was on the wall that the the problem was this was very much Uh, A defeat that you could put down to mental as much as sort of physical attributes. And that's the greatness, I suppose, of of this Cork team and great teams that we see in loads of uh, codes, that they can just put the squeeze on opposition at the perfect, at the vital time. And you know Dublin just didn't have an answer once Cork kind of stepped it up in the in the second half. Yeah,
6: like if you're playing better than that Cork team, you need to be going in and taking your chances and going in a lot ahead because they were they always have that spell in the second half. They know how to win. They know how to come to Crow Park and take it home. And if you're only going in in your level with 20 minutes to go, that Cork team are not going to lose. Mm. And, and that's what happened. Rena Buckley steps up. And she she knows how to win. She's her 17th All Ireland. Um, and if you you're playing well and you're frustrated like the 30 wides Dublin had. If you're like, you're frustrated by that then and it feels like the more that they were trying, the less it was happening for them up front and Cork were able to get people behind the ball and the game just completely yeah. got away from Dublin who were far superior in the yeah. first half. Oh, the
3: first half were if you'd never seen the sport before you'd assume Dublin were the team who won yeah. every year yeah. they yeah, were yeah. dominant yeah. they were so, was so actually, far so was, far better yeah yeah. it was actually but more so score.
4: Yeah, more so than the 13 wides it was the wides they didn't kick yeah you it know, was like up the, in the air yeah, like like the, like short Cork uh, defended the defended the D and dared Dublin to kick points from 30 yards out and they just didn't either they didn't back themselves they didn't feel confident or whether it was the weather conditions I don't know but Cork it made it so easy for Dublin yeah. you know like they, they just said right get to 30 yards kick the ball over the bar if you're able to and they weren't and like that was the key uh, the key moments in the game with Dub- Dublin's refusal to take on shots that really they, they should have been able to and, kick and you know? they can
6: yeah. th- th- those girls can so it was frustrating to watch it um, and seeing and I thought they and might have learned a bit more from, from the Camogie match with Cork and Kilkenny because Kilkenny have had the same issue over the last few years losing, losing, losing and they really needed to come to that game with a lot more bottle and a lot more metal than they'd ever shown before and they knew that Cork team you had to go in well ahead and then turn the screw once you were playing better you had to make sure those chances were taken and I thought there was a little bit of psychology in how the Camogie team beat Cork mm. um, after all their years of success that maybe Dublin could have learned a little bit from um, but they just kept falling at that and it was actually quite difficult to watch. It wasn't the best game of football um, by, any, by any stretch. Obviously hampered as well a lot by the weather. Um, but yeah, the, just the missed chances. There will be, I'd say, a very a lot of very, very upset footballers today. Uh,
3: is that a frustration for fans of the sport, fans of the ladies' game, that the, the, the spectacle wasn't as good as it could have been? Despite Because the, the crowd is amazing. Like 30, nearly 35,000 people. That's a great point you make about Croke Park. It can look half empty. But when you've got thirty-five thousand people at any game of of Mm. top-level sports, that's good going. Like
4: any game in the Leicester Football Championship, isn't it? And and any game at all in the Leicester Hurling Championship. I mean, that's what you're talking about. Yeah,
3: the Women's FA Cup final had uh, smaller, uh, smaller attendance, and they had made a big play over there about the fact that this was building on uh, how great, you know, the recent success of the women's soccer Mm -hmm. team in the UK. And even at that, they didn't get thirty-five thousand at Wembley. So, so, so so great crowd despite the weather, but. Given the controversy and also, you know, maybe the the standard of the game not being as high as you usually see, is there a bit of a sour taste?
6: Yeah, a little bit because we we, we build up to these days. Obviously, we're playing along, and all those girls are playing along. We don't care about media coverage when you're actually on a team or you're, you're playing away. But it is the one one chance, like in terms of people showcase you can showcase and we talk all the time about equality and how it is a great game to watch and it would be brilliant if there was more support behind it and then when it comes to the one big day that actually people pay attention you know you're on the front of the Irish Times sports section for the first time and it, it is a bit of a pity that it, it, the game's not there. But that's sport. That's what happens. Like, I didn't think the men's game last week was particularly good. And people were talking about this epic. And I was like, am I watching the same <laughs> football match as everybody else? Um, but again, it's because people know the story of Mayo. They know the Dublin footballers. They know how unusual it was for, for those lads not to be scoring. And so, and that's what I talk about all the time with the women's sport. If you get to know the women, you get to know their stories. That match might be a bit abysmal yesterday. But if you're very much connected to Sinead O'Hearn and want her to, to actually lift the cup for the first time, like that's when it becomes an epic then because yeah. you're, there's a couple of points in it. It's low scoring. They were very similar games. There was a huge amount of space in the middle of the pitch the whole time, running game and then not being able to score at the end. They were, they were very similar in, in that sense. But yeah, it's, it's because people don't know these girls. They don't know their stories. They have no emotional connection to them. It falls down.
3: Okay, well, hopefully that'll change over the, the next few years. This is Shane O'Carroll, great to talk to you. Thanks for Thank being
1: here. Thank you. So he's almost like having a second captain, isn't he? <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever.
3: Richie Sadler's here, Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the <laughs> fuck happened?
2: <laughs>
4: no, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone in the
2: city knew
4: about it but they one have seen it. You know? It is not war and death and famine it's not that at all it's the opposite of that it's persuaded of the world outside of that that's why sport's important.
3: There's an Irish Times second captain's football podcast out there awaiting you and it is brimful of croque monsieur analogies for some reason. Ken.
1: That's... Yeah, <laughs> They have asked for that, really. Yeah, you can laugh. I to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What yeah. are you not? I'd like to stay alive for All
2: six right, days. Now, we'll I'd say it to you, but i not say it to you now. I'm down What you doing down here? you yes. me, man.
1: <laughs> Feeding the Einstein's own. That's what's going on. Football show. Einstein's hungry, hungry, hungry little devils. And sometimes, um, when they don't eat for a while, they can become treacherous. Um, What once seemed, uh, you know, pleasant, sort of flaxen haired scientific genius um, can actually become an asp at your bosom, plunging its fangs deep in search of your lifeblood. These are things that can happen in football. Uh, So we talk a bit about that and we talk a, a bit about Arsenal. Who uh, stomped on Chelsea? Uh, and we talked a little bit about West Ham, who are unhappy. You know, there's just a f- they've moved into the new house and there's just a list of things which. Snag list. They're not really happy about and they it looks as though they want to take it a bit further.
3: On December 11th, 1981, Muhammad Ali stepped into the ring for the final time against a uh, limited enough but strong young opponent in Trevor Burbick. The fight went ahead despite growing fears around Ali's health and a sharp decrease in worldwide interest in watching him lace up the gloves. One listless performance later, Ali seemed, I think, belatedly to accept the inevitable. Tim Hill is the man conducting the post-fight interviews here.
6: That's the center of the ring
1: right now. Trevor Burbick and Muhammad Ali are hugging each other. Burbick is telling Ali that, listen to this.
4: I couldn't have done it with you, man. You're my superior, but I'm going to do it for you, man. You inspired me since I've been a kid. I love you, man. You're a true brother, man. I love you. Thank you, man. You made me. Bless you. Pray
2: for you. Muhammad.
0: Muhammad. Still a madhouse
1: in the ring. Mohammed, can I get you just for a second, Mohammed? Mohammed, can I get you just one second? Do you agree now? Do you agree now, Mohammed? That you should retire and never come back in this ring again?
4: Mohammed,
0: do you? Is it? Has it settled in your mind now, after losing, that this is it for you? You should never come back in this ring again?
4: I'm sure that this is enough to convince you. I didn't get hurt. I saw the shots. I couldn't take them. Father time just came.
2: It looked like at ringside that, you know, you were slow, you
0: were telegraphing your punches, the eyes could see it, but the physical ability just couldn't get it there.
4: That's right. I think that's the trouble. Father time comes. In my young days, I wouldn't have had much trouble, but I think time came.
3: Yeah, pretty haunting audio there of Ali, not sounding, not sounding great, really. That fight is the subject of a new book by one of our regular guests, Dave Hannigan, called Drama in the Bahamas. Dave, great to talk to you.
2: Good to talk to you guys.
3: The well the last book you wrote about Muhammad Ali, the big fight was about his his fight against Al Blue Lewis in Ireland. It was a pretty joyous affair all in all. Um this one has a bit of a different feel to it. I I guess it's it's, it's fair to describe this as a book about one of the more tawdry episodes of Ali's career.
2: Yeah, this this is the, the tone is is the exact opposite really. This is a very sad story of Ali. Um, hanging on for one more fight long, long after he should have hung up the gloves, uh, being exploited. And, And I suppose willingly putting himself out there, too. It's not just that he's being exploited. He wants the limelight one more time. It's pathetic. It's kind of sad. Nobody really wants him to fight outside a small kind of group of people who are hoping to profit from it and perhaps he himself also wanted to fight, but everybody else knows that, you know, the time is up, Father Time has called him, but he keeps going, and, and it's just really a pathetic um, portrait of a, of a man in decline, a fighter in decline, and, you know, just, just trying to keep fighting against the dying of the light, if you like.
3: Why do you think it is, David that he... Wanted to continue because money is always an obvious uh, an obvious motivation for sports people at that level. But I would have thought at that stage of his fame and popularity, he could have. There's other ways to make money through corporate gigs and college lectures and all sorts of things.
2: Well, exactly. That's a fair point. He he had won and squandered fortunes. This is by 1981. He had won and squandered fortunes by that time in his life. And to give you his attitude to money, he had no real idea how much he was getting for the fight. Some days he says three million, some days he says, you know, uh, two million. And I think it's one million is if if he ever even got the one million. And, you know, there's a lot of money to come out of that one million before he sees it. But, you know, money definitely was not the, the motivating factor. The motivating factor, I think, was he just couldn't bear to say that this was over, that this was the end. He had to prove to himself he'd been embarrassed against Larry Holmes, and he had to prove to himself that he, he still had it, which ultimately, of course, he didn't. And then the other problem is... Um, at that time, you were the rise of of the, Dur- the Durans and the Leonards, and, um, you know, the Tommy Hearns. And that was driving him nuts that <laughs> these these new this new generation in and around Middleweights had come had come along and were making a fortune. And they were the show now. And he was no longer. He really was no longer the show.
3: Yeah. The Four Kings, who George Kimball famously wrote about. It's, it's, it's interesting. He, he was just envious of their of the impact that they were beginning to have. They were taking all the limelight.
2: Exactly. And and he says it again and again, you know, these guys are making 10 million per fight. They would have nothing without me. And he's kind of right. I mean, he, he made, you know, he, he had lifted the sport up and then the sport had said, right, we're done with you, which obviously hurt him. And he was, you know, determined to prove them wrong, uh, which, of course, physically he was incapable of doing.
3: The, there is a narrative that he was used and manipulated into fighting, not just the last fight, but maybe the last number of fights, including the Holmes one. Um, and as you say there, obviously, there were people who facilitated it happening when it, it shouldn't have happened. But it, it it did always seem strange to me that that narrative seemed to, you know, this, we're talking about an intelligent man here, who a principled man who famously risked jail time, risked his career over Vietnam. So I often kind of wondered about that idea that he was manipulated into doing it or that he was led into doing it. Would you apportion a fair degree of the blame to the man himself for
2: getting in the ring? I would. I would say, actually, the man himself, you know, deserves some blame. And then, you know, there are people around him who who should have shout, shouted stop, you know. Uh, famously, his, his doctor, uh, Ferdi Pichico, had shouted stop and had walked away. But others, you know, stayed there with him when, when maybe it was time for them all to walk away and say, no, we're going to save you. We're going to save you from yourself. And and then, you know, he was, you know, he was a smart man, but he was vulnerable. I mean, even his um, his best friend, Uh, The photographer Howard Bingham says, you know, once somebody walked up to Ali and started talking about Allah, they had him immediately, you know. And this is the character in this story, James Cornelius, who's a kind of a shyster out of Atlanta who, who puts this whole kind of farrago together. He, uh, he was a member of the Nation of Islam. He was prominent in the nation in Atlanta. He had done some good work there and he had an in with Ali. So he was the guy that was able to, you know, on this occasion, tap into Ali's own insecurities and persuade Ali that, yes, he could do it. He still had something left.
3: It's amazing that a guy like that can just waltz into Ali's life and suddenly become a central player.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, when we see athletes today in any sport, I mean, they have they have a card and sanitaire around them and it's impossible to penetrate this. You know, Ali appeared to me, you know, and this is the second book I've written about him, as you said, to be somebody who was wide open uh, and that was good and bad. It was He was wide open, people could approach him, but he was also wide open to, to shysters coming in and exploiting him. And this guy, Cornelius, who is a remarkable character. He doesn't have a penny to his name and he puts together this Ali fight. He's making, uh, his office is actually a phone box or a public phone, sorry, in a restaurant in Los Angeles. And that's where, from there, he puts the fight together. He's bouncing checks left and right, yet he still gets Ali, Burbeck, Tommy Hearns and a host of others to the Bahamas.
3: When you see some of Ali's later media appearances, even if you go just across the Parkinson appearances, the appearances in Michael Parkinson's show, you can see how how ravaged he's become by age. We're talking 1981, wasn't this fight? What was the state of his health like at that stage?
2: Well, there's there's a whole chapter on, on this in the book, and it's, it's very interesting because they, they release a medical report uh, as part of the publicity for the fight, which in and of itself tells you how bad things already are, that they're basically printing the a, a results of a physical examination. But the f- results are a year old, and he had other tests done I mean that year I think he was in hospital 3 times that year for different things and you know after the fight Sports Illustrated in 1982 reexamined one of the medical mm. r- reports that the promoters had released and they found he already had brain damage there was already brain damage there and and then I mean that's the medical evidence the physic or the the evidence of of your own eyes if you look back at some of the YouTube uh, footage of of him in 1981 you can see he's already a diminished he 's already a diminished force he is not you know the man that he was some of the some of the appearances he's noticeably slurring. I know earlier in 1981 he was in London he recorded two two things for the BBC and they didn't run them because they felt that it, they, it was difficult to listen to and it was embarrassing for him because of the slurring now he has other days where he's not it's not as pronounced and he's still somewhat you know the old alley or, or a version of the old alley but Look, you know the evidence is there. The physical evidence is there before our eyes, and then, you know, the the fact that there there are these doctors who are hanging around the fight saying he's perfect, he's fully fit, he's he's in the best shape of his life. I mean, it shows you people will say anything, um, even professionals will say anything to just keep the show on the road.
3: Doctor Pacheco obviously had long since left him, but they found other doctors willing to say no, nah, he's good to go here.
2: Yeah, and these were doctors. I mean, doctors connected to you know I think one of the one of the chief promoters of his health was a guy from nyu which is an incredibly um you know credible organ or credible university and hospital so again you know it it wasn't like these were you know fly-by-night doctors these were real people with genuine qualifications but pacheco had walked away i think it was four years earlier He, he he emerged with great honor from the whole thing because he gave up a seat you know on the bandwagon a seat a witness, you know, being a witness to the greatest show on earth, as it was at that, that time, to try to prevent Ali from hurting himself more. Dave, what was
3: Ali, what, what was he saying in the build-up to this fight? Because presumably this line of questioning was constantly there in the press conferences promoting it.
2: He was basically saying, I'm fine, I, I'm in the shape of my life. Um, you know, the, the, the um, old friend of his, Harold Conrad, who actually put together the fight in Dublin, he flies into town. Against his better judgment, he finally arrives in Nassau a couple of days before the fight starts. He meets Ali, who and they go back decades. Conrad is the man who helped him uh, come out of retirement after the um, Vietnam War stuff. And Conrad says to him, you know, I, I can hear it. I can hear it in the way you're speaking, Muhammad. Like, this is not you. And he says, no, the problem is um, you're hearing white and I'm speaking colored. Right. Um, you know, he, he basically is try, you know, trying to joke his way out of the of the fact that those closest to him, at least those who are honest enough to admit it, can see that he is a, a diminished version of his former self. But when it came to the media, he talked. He kept talking up a good game, and then people like Angelo Dundee, you know, to his shame, he also comes into town and he talks up a good game. Says Ali's in the best shape. Uh, he's seen him in for years. He's really looking good, and you know, everybody's basically going along with the storyline. Um, except for a few people who can see that this is this is not something he should be doing.
3: Yeah, he clearly wasn't in the best shape. He's in the worst shape ever if you, if you go by his weight, because I think you make the point that it's the heaviest that he'd ever weighed in for a fight, which, which is interesting because I spoke to Jerry Eisenberg last year for an annual that we did uh, in, in Vegas, and Eisenberg had covered uh, Ali around this time, says that he had a conversation with him the night before the fight against Larry Holmes where essentially Ali is saying, listen, you don't think I should be fighting, do you? And he says, no, I don't think, nobody thinks you should be fighting, you know, you should be finished. And then Ali, in typically flamboyant fashion, whips off the top, you know, and says, what do you think now? And according to Eisenberg, he says it was like a ghostly presence. He looked exactly like he looked the night he fought Liston. He'd lost all the weight. Now, Eisenberg wasn't to know at that time that he'd lost all the weight through, I think you said it was thyroid medication um, that, that he was using. Certainly he was taking stuff to get down to that. It was essentially an, he, he looked the part, but through fairly unnatural means. And he'd obviously shed it all up by the time, or put the weight back on by the time he fought the last fight.
2: So I mean, he was in, in a very unnatural condition when he fought Holmes in a short. I mean, he could barely move that night. But against Burbeck you know, the telling point in the fight, is, and Ali says this the day after the fight, he says, you know, the first clinch that he got into with Burbeck and Burbick was, you know, in, in very, very good physical shape. Uh, the moment that he, you know, got into a clinch with Burbick in the ring, he said he could feel how hard Burbick's body was and how soft his own body was mm. next to it, which, you know, that was the moment very, very early on in the first round when Ali realized that he is really, you know, he has hung on too long himself. You know, he he comes to that point himself, I think, in the first round of the fight.
3: How did he perform in the fight itself? Did he show any of any flashes of the old brilliance? He,
2: He showed flashes. I mean, the fight's on YouTube, if anybody wants to see it. I mean, the greatness of of Ali in the 70s and right up to 81 is almost everything is on YouTube. He didn't do too badly at times. I mean, he he tried, you know, a bit of dancing and the crowd went wild for that. He had a couple of flurries, but then there are times where he's just against the ropes, being battered. And I think it's in the seventh round when Burbick has him and is pummeling him and Burbick stops and looks at the ref. As if to say, like, step in here. This is it. You know, stop this. And and to to be fair to the ref, I think if it was anybody else except Ali, you know, and if it was in a more credible venue than a baseball field, a community baseball field in the Bahamas, they would have stopped the fight at that point. But he doesn't. The ref the ref lets it go. Now he's not badly hurt hurt because Burbick, although he later became heavyweight champion, Burbick was not a top-flight uh, heavyweight by any means.
3: The, no, I, I will get on to Berwick in a minute, but the you mentioned the venue there, and it certainly <laughs> it wasn't ideal for a top-level sporting event. There there are about a million different logistical problems that seem to arise in the build-up to the fight. Dave, I don't know, what what would, what would you want to pick out the best to best illustrate how <laughs> shambolic this event was? There, there's plenty in there. There's a whole book full of it.
2: Well, the, 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 exactly. From start to finish, it's a complete debacle. I think the greatest one is possibly... Uh, when they realize there's no bell, there's no bell to, ha- to you know, to ring in the rounds. And uh, two of the two of the organizers go into a farm nearby. This is the legend anyway. And and this is the story that, you know, print the legend, as they say. And this is a couple of eyewitnesses corroborated this for me, uh, that they take a cowbell uh, off an animal in the farm and bring it in. And and that's it. You know, the, the cowbell tolls. The, the final 10 rounds of Ali's career, which it, 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 mm-hmm. in its own way like is the perfect metaphor for how pathetic and how sad the entire thing is. And then you have, I think there are 12 boxers togging off in one uh, one locker room. All the undercard fighters are sharing one locker room. Tommy Hearns and Burbeck are, are getting togged out in caravans in the car park. There are two porta-potties for the fighters it's absolutely from start to finish. I mean, Crow Park was a messy promotion. They forgot the gloves. They forgot the gloves in Nassau and the Bahamas as well. But I, Crow Park was, you know, the slickest promotion ever compared to what happened in Nassau, and that, if you like, showed how far, how far down the, how far down he had fallen. Like, I mean, this was this was not so much off Broadway. This was like theater in the boondocks, if you like.
3: <laughs> For if at least it was enough to finally. Um, convince Ali to finish up. There's an amazing scene you paint in the dressing room afterwards where he seems to be accepting that his career is over as are most of the people covering the fight but those close to him, well those close to him are probably telling him what 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 they feel he needs to hear. But John Travolta is in the middle of this scene and uh, Hugh McIlvanney has written about this in the past. Uh, Travolta, I don't know at what point he attached himself to Ali or when they became friendly but towards the end of the career it seems like Travolta's you know, quite a constant presence in and around these big fights. Maybe it's only the final big fight against Berwick, I'm not sure, but he's pleading with the the champ not to retire and all this sort of
2: (laughs) very, It's a very pathetic and kind of poignant scene, like Travolta with tears in his eyes. But, you know, younger listeners may not appreciate this, but in 1981, John Travolta was possibly the biggest movie star in the world. Certainly he was in the conversation of biggest movie stars in the world. And himself and Ali had become friends um, I think from you know from the time that Travolta became famous right. in the late seventies or seventy seven, whatever it was, onwards. But, you know, you, you mentioned the scene at the end where Travolta's on his knees pleading with the champ not to hang them up. But even even more depressing is on the day of the fight, on Dundee, Angelo Dundee is in Ali's bedroom trying to convince Ali to watch a tape of Burbeck fighting Holmes, you know, to prepare properly for the fight. And then Travolta comes in wearing a disguise. And starts joking around, explaining that he'd been wearing this these false teeth in the hotel lobby, entertaining the other guests in the hotel lobby. So Dundee is kind of tearing his hair out, trying to get Ali to focus on the footage, and Travolta is kind of goofing off, making Ali laugh. This is
3: on the this is on the day of the fight.
2: This is on the day of the fight. On the day of, you know, um, eventually um, Harold Conrad is in the room, Angelo Dundee is in the room, and then Ali's kids come in, and all the while. Burbeck versus Holmes is playing on on the TV in the corner and um Dundee is pleading with him look champ here's what he comes he comes in he leads with the right or whatever you know he's giving him actual boxing information but then there's this entire circus going on Ali's lying on his bed it's all in in his in his room at this point and then You know, there's a dramatic moment where uh, the head of security comes up and says, right, it's time to go. And, you know, Ali gets dressed. They all go downstairs. And Harold Conrad says, you know, a fleet of black limos pull up. And Harold Conrad, who's seen Ali, you know, through through the decades, most of his professional career, uh, Harold Conrad says everybody's dressed up. All the black limos are there. And You know, it looks for all the world like a funeral cortege, Mm. which is a very striking, you know, wonderfully lyrical kind of description of what's about to happen, really. It is, yeah. I'm kind
3: of shoehorning Trevor Burbick at the tail end of an interview here. And he maybe deserves an interview of his own, this weird character, Dave. First of all, as a fighter, I guess he, you know, he went on to become a world champion. He lost to Mike Tyson. Tyson won the title from Trevor Burbick. But it was outside of the ring, really, where his life was, was crazy. It completely unravelled.
2: I mean, Ber- berbeck, in researching the book, you know, the, the berbeck chapters were, were a surprise in terms of how much I didn't realise. I knew at the start there was a bit of a story there. He dies in tragic circumstances, bludgeoned to death by his nephew mm. in a churchyard in Jamaica. But you know his life began, his boxing life began at, when he turned up at Guantanamo Bay to work as a laborer for the U.S. Marines. He learns to box there, goes to the Olympics, having never fought really as an amateur, but goes there representing Jamaica. Somehow becomes a credible heavyweight, fights Larry Holmes, fights Ali, and then you know because it was the early to mid '80s when box when the heavyweight division was in disarray, he becomes world heavyweight champion and as As you point out tyson is the tyson's first takes the title from Burbeck in a very very short kind of embarrassing fight, but that night Ty, you know Burbeck claimed he was poisoned, he claimed people were plotting against him uh you know putting poison gas or gas into his room to so that he would be sleepy in the fight, and then he becomes this incredibly sad character. Um, continuing to box on, uh, falling foul of the law, claiming he's a messenger of Jesus. He actually does preach at a Billy Graham rally before 20,000 people in Canada. So he's a religious zealot who ends up raping his babysitter, doing jail time for that, and just, you know, very, very disturbed, a very dark story in in many ways. I mean, the alley fight is, is, even though he becomes a heavyweight champion later, the alley fight is one of the few highlights in a very, very dark Unfortunately, all too typical boxing tale.
3: Well, I was going to ask. It's. Do do you think that was there any theory put out there in your research that you found that maybe his his boxing career contributed to some of what he ended ended up doing? Uh, Not not to excuse anything, but that uh, I mean, was there potential of any brain damage there himself?
2: Absolutely. I mean, his family his family are adamant that. That he had just, you know, boxing too many blows to the head had changed him. Um, although, you know, I mean, he he had started claiming, you know, to be a messenger of Jesus and to have visitations from Jesus earlier on in his boxing career. But he boxed on until his mid forties, nice. which again is the other sad thing here. He's a young man fighting Ali, or well, he's in his late twenties, but he's fighting Ali, and he he you know the the whole narrative is he will never stay on that long. I think he boxes till he's forty-five years old, and. You know, the damage, you know, he, he was in with Larry Holmes, he was in with Tyson, uh, you know, he fought some very good fighters who inflicted some real damage on him and, you know, obviously this would, would have it take its toll yeah. on, on anybody's brain, but, you know, again, very, very sad, very tragic, he, he's worth... I mean, Trevor Burbick is a thirty for thirty or thirty by thirty documentary waiting to be made, really. Yeah,
3: well, Dave. Not as we said at the start, we did warn there's not a huge amount of joy in this part of the story, but I think it isn't a very important part of the uh, of the whole um, Ali canon, really. And it's it's a great read. Dra- read, I should say, drama in the Bahamas is the name of the book. Dave Hannigan, brilliant to talk to you as always.
2: Thanks a lot, guys. Good day. For a blue corn, won't you bring
3: back- All those colors to my dreams (laughs) Don't
0: be rumble, look like
6: a butterfly Sing like a bee Don't give a
0: damn about the money Been shot, take the title, take it all And to go to jail, tomorrow. This chump has
3: got everybody scared Scared of what? You told him I don't have nothing but a prayer Well, chump, all I need is a prayer, because if that prayer reached the right man, not only will George Fullman fall, but mountains will fall. Oh my God, he's won the title back at 32! This fresh young boxer is something to see, and the heavyweight championship is his destiny.
2: You saw him on television, there
4: was no one more beautiful. You saw him walking down the street, he was a beautiful thing to
2: see. He moved around the ring, he had style and class, he was tall and good looking. Everything you'd want from a boxer, a raffler, football player. And to
0: be honest with you, he belonged to the arts because he had poem, poetry, he had it all.
4: Specimen, fighting machine. You
0: know, he was handsome, he was articulate, he was funny, charismatic. It was whooping ass,
3: too. If you don't read Dave Hannigan's America at Large Column in the Irish Times, well, you really should read it. And just to give you that title of the book again, it's called Drama in the Bahamas, Muhammad Ali's Last Fight. If you want to hear some more happy recollections of Ali, well, you can read Dave's previous book if you want, but also I think we might put up the... Podcast that we did after Ali passed away in early June with Andy Lee, Jerry Eisenberg and the Reverend Jesse Jackson. We can uh, post that back up for you if you don't want to bother scrolling, scrolling your way back there through to early June. Uh, there's lots of great stuff in that one, but well worth reading drama in the Bahamas. If you, if you want to go through, as we said at the start, one of the more tawdry parts of Ali's career and life. That's pretty much it. Thursday is going to be a good show, I would re- reckon. Ryder Cup preview, uh, all and final preview. Yeah,
1: Champions League will have been on.
3: Champions League will have been on.
1: Wow! Wow!
4: The oh, can it be Thursday already? Are you Are you going to stay up on? What time are we talking? Two uh, a.m. Two a. M. 2 a. m. Time. <laughs> for ninety minutes. It's uninterrupted. No uh, commercial breaks. Oh, really? Uh, I think it's, yeah. it's going to be That's hard to watch. I, uh, We're win so
1: much. Oh, god! Yeah. Uh, you know, oh, jeez. No, I don't even want to go into it. Maybe some. Maybe after. But maybe we'll talk we about the we'll debate. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah,
3: let's do that. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Owen. Thanks,
4: Kieran. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, On. Thanks, Thanks for listening. Kieran. Take care.